Well, then, so you you saw my text, yeah, and kind of the general gist of what I'm what I'm you know what I want to explore, and and these are my notes. Nice. So we're we're gonna we're just gonna have a conversation because I'm gonna have this same conversation with Steve, um, and I'm gonna have this conversation with at least Dirk. I think Jason and Dirk are pretty much similar. I mean, they're, they're similar enough to where I think, you know, if Jason wants to come out that, that's not a problem, but <clears throat> at least have this conversation with Dirk, but I, and I know a lot of people are going to, I mean, we, you and I've talked about our, you know, mutual philosophies, I guess, um, over the years. And so some of this might be a little redundant, but, but I want to dive a little bit deeper into your specific experience in those because it's well let's just dive in sound good yeah all right ready hey everybody welcome to row hunting resources podcast all right so for it is what we're ahead of the ball game it's friday july 22nd and early afternoon so we're not waiting until sunday night at 11 o'clock at night <laughs> i um, actually do have uh shorts on i'm not in my underwear yeah, there. Oh, there. Well, I might be here. I might be here shortly because you can hear the air, air conditioning unit is off, and today it's supposed to be like 103, 104, and so we're about ready to hit the hot part of the day. So if you see me just start peeling clothes, we're gonna go for, we're gonna skip the video, and we're just gonna be audio. Yeah, please, uh, please skip the video on that. I don't need to see that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Although it may get more views, I don't know. We might have to explore different stuff. Um, <laughs> anyway, hey, I might be able to get sponsors, you know, just turn into yeah. an OnlyFans podcast and <laughs> that route. Um, anyway, so, all right. So, obviously, if you are familiar with this podcast and, and you've listened to me, you know the voice on the other side of this is Jay Scott of Jay Scott Outdoors. Jay and I have talked, been friends forever. We've talked, I don't know how many times on podcast together. So some of this is going to be a little bit redundant for what some of you have maybe listened to, but here's the, here's the premise of this discussion today. I kind of want to get, I want to dive into, and I've talked about mine and it, and it's plastered all over my website. I've got a video on my YouTube channel. People can look at, I've, I've talked about my philosophy, how I came to my elk calling elk hunting philosophy, if you will, and then ultimately the strategies that I use on the landscape calling elk every year. But what I wanted to, Jay, for you, I really, and and you and I have talked about some of that, but what I wanted to dive in with you is, okay, just off the surface of what I know of you, you guided in Arizona and pretty much you stuck to unit nine. Is that correct? For the the vast majority of it? I guided in Arizona for 20 years, uh, primarily was in unit nine, unit 10 and unit 23. Yep. So those three, okay. yep. three yep. units. I and agree. then with, with units three C thrown in there, you know, four or five times, four or five years. Uh, but you know, nine, 10, 23 and three C those four units kind of were my bread and butter. And I did that for 20, 20 seasons. Uh, I would take the entire month off and go and commit myself to that unit for the season whether i had an archery hunter an early rifle hunter or maybe sometimes both um ran a real small operation really focused on you know high quality archery hunt for the whole two weeks i would only take a hunter for the full season and then in arizona 
after the archery season, usually the next day starts the early rifle or the muzzleloader season. So I would always try and have an archer and an early rifle or a muzzleloader hunter. So I could be in the same unit for the, for the entire month. Okay. And then from there in 17, I became a hunt manager there at Ot six ranch in Colorado. So for the last five seasons, I've been in Colorado. Um, so I guess that's 25, uh, seasons kind of monitoring elk, if you will. Okay. Now peppered in between that, you have also hunted white mountain Apache, right? I've, I've hunted San Carlos Apache, oh. which, which borders the white mountain, but okay. I've hunted right. the white mountain as well, but not for elk. Okay. Um, but I've spent quite a bit of time there as well. You're right. I, I did for so San I hunted Carlos. in 0405 and 06 on the San Carlos Apache and Indian Reservation, uh, harvested three really nice bulls, um, and, and really was intrigued by that area because of the amount of time that they allowed you to hunt. It was a 15 day season. Um, and so, you know, for me, hunting there was, you know, big bulls. That's great. But I was there for the interaction. I was there for the bugling. I was there for the calling. I was there for, you know, getting to be around elk. Um, one of the things that drew me to the San Carlos over say the white mountain is the white mountains, you know, a five to seven day hunt. Um, the San Carlos was always a 15 day hunt. And I just felt like for what I was looking for with the interaction with the elk 15 days was a, a much better fit for me. Absolutely. Now, and, and I don't know this, so I'm asking on that hunt, were you, did, did they match you up with a quote unquote guide that yeah, did, so on, did all of the stuff or were you in charge of your hunt planning each day and calling? That's the big one. Were you the one driving the, the strategies and tactics? What, what were you the one driving the, the focus of your calling efforts and where you were going to go? Yeah, for sure. I mean, part of the, you know, it's got big giant bulls and that was great. But part of the reason for me buying those tags, those three years was I wanted to be able to mess with those bulls and call those bulls and play with those bulls. You do have to have a tribal guide. And I had uh, three different years, had great tribal guides. Um, but it, I made it very clear from the beginning that, you know, I liked calling elk. I, I bought the tag not to kill a giant, although that was you know, kind of a goal. I, I bought the tag to be able to interact with those elk for 15 days in a row. And so that was the beauty. And, and I drew out those hunts a long time. Um, you know, didn't shoot to, towards the, till towards the end of the hunt for the reason of, I was just enjoying the interaction for me. Um, I feel like the number of at bats that I've gotten, in the elk woods between 20 years of guiding on public land and then, you know, hunting myself on the San Carlos. And then, you know, obviously spending the amount of, you know, five, five, you know, rut cycles on the OT six. Um, for me, it's all about time with the elk at bats, you know, watching and learning from them. And, you know, I, I feel like I've, probably had as, as, as much time around these animals as, as pretty much anyone out there. And, uh, you know, I don't say that in a way of bragging. It's just a reality. It's just Correct. a fact. Okay. <clears throat> so the big, okay. So for the San Carlos, the one, the one point that I really want people to understand is Jay Scott was driving 
So Jay Scott was able to use Jay Scott's preferred calling strategies and techniques. However, that needed to play out on those 15 days. Someone else wasn't driving this, you know, steering the ship on that one. It was Jay Scott being able, I'm Jay Scott chose what he wanted to do, how he wanted to do it. And Jay Scott was the one executing. The, yeah. In those situations, fortunately I had great guides and they kind of understood what I was after and, and they allowed me to quote unquote, you know, do my thing. And, and we had some great hunts and great encounters and great experiences, but you know, anyone that knows me, I kind of have my own way, just like a lot of people have your own system, have your own way to do things, you know, have, you know, there's, there's some people out there that, you know, really want to be guided on every hunt. And there's some people that want to be the guide on every hunt. So, um, you know, we've kind of been on both sides of those spectrums, but I definitely have a system, um, and kind of a way that I like to do things I go pretty hard and, and, you know, try really hard and go at it pretty hard. And, um, so for me to pay, to have someone calling for me or making decisions, and certainly I'm, I'm open to hear other people's perspectives. I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, just, it's just completely one-sided. I mean, you know, we've been in unit nine together and we've bounced ideas. I think we ought to go here. Well, what about over here? Well, you know, and, and, and Dar will tell you it's, you know, Steve Chapel will tell you it's just drives them crazy. The analytics that go through my mind as to what we're going to do for the evening hunt, why we're going to do that, you know, and, and, you know, beating a dead horse, but that's just kind of how I do. I'm an analytical person. I analyze everything. I, I, you know, micromanage my, you know, it's just the way I do things. Well, and then the, yeah. And especially when you know that you've got three, four, five different, all of them are legit options. Okay. So, so which, what, you know, which ones? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's about trying to make the best decision you can and trying to, you know, reach back on that experience and all the mistakes and that, that I've made and, and, and the, some of the things that I've done right and try and make the best decision, you know, it's no different. I just got back from the green river fishing last night and, you know, trying to decide, okay, do we go early? Do we go late? Do we go in the middle? you know, do we go before the guides after the guides, you know, do we fish this type of water? Do we fish the banks? Do we fish out in the seams? Um, it's just, just kind of how I roll. And the answer on that is just, yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. So we've got, all right. Cause we're not done yet. So we've got Arizona, Arizona public land. Uh, but you also have the San Carlos. You've got your experience now with the Ot six, and we'll, we'll talk about that probably in more depth here in, in a, just a second, but you've also had a chance to go play up in Montana as mm -hmm. well. Uh, two, two seasons in Montana. Okay. Um, got to see a little bit of a little bit different stuff than some, some of the, you know, behaviors and stuff that I'm used to down in Arizona. So it was really cool to see that for sure. All right. So let's start. Okay. I want to get back to, so the, the whole point behind this is, you have developed your preferred calling strategies and, and style, okay? But you have been in a variety of different places. Now, I'm, I'm saying this as an advantage. You've had the, the fortunate opportunity to play in an arena where in – Every single one of those cases, 
you're in units or properties that have been managed for older age class uh, of your bull population, meaning generally speaking, you're going to have a much higher bull to cow ratio than, you know, Steamboat Spring, you know, Steamboat Colorado or, you know, some public ground in Oregon or Idaho or whatever. So no doubt. And even like when I hunted in Utah, you know, it was the beaver, oh, I, unit. it was I, very, I, very completely, highly managed. I've completely um, forgot about Utah. Okay. So let's add that one in the mix. Perfect. I so forgot about most that. all of my experience have been in high quality, very dense elk areas. Um, you know, whether it's hunting or fishing, I try and put myself in places where, you know, there's a lot of fish to catch, or there's a lot of elk to play with, or a lot of turkeys. Um, you know, I, I, I've, made a point my life to try and position myself in the best opportunities that I can, whatever it may be. Okay. Now there are going to be some people listening to this. that are going to instantaneously jump on and be like, no, must be nice. You know, oh, that doesn't, you know, Jay, you know, that's fine. You know, it's great. I love blah, 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 blah. But that does not translate to over the counter unit, Colorado, over the counter in Oregon or, or hunting in Washington or hunting it, you know, everybody's going to go take their personal, especially if, if all they have access to right now is public ground over the counter units, there are going to be many people that are going to instantaneously go it. Then what Jay had, then what Jay has experienced is irrelevant and does not translate to what I experience on public ground. This is where yours truly is going to step in and be like, no, it absolutely translates into what you're dealing with on public ground because of one thing. And you, you mentioned it and I don't, it doesn't matter. You have, you have focused on those areas that have, higher bull to cow ratios, a much older age class of an animal, but your value set is going after the most mature animals on the landscape. Now, oftentimes that translates into being the biggest animal on the landscape, the biggest antler quality, but let's just, let's, and it doesn't always translate that, but let's just lump big honking antlers with older age class animal. All right. So what you're telling me is you've had the opportunity in your life to hunt Arizona, some of the most premier units. I don't know much about three C, so I know it has some good trophy potential, but I don't know if that's the overall, you know, you know, how does it compare with unit nine or 10 as far as the, it it used to be very equal. Um, I would say it's not quite as good. I haven't been in there in a bunch of years, but when it was really good, I was in there and, and, you know, so those units are all about the same. Okay. It was really good. Yeah. Okay. So areas where you've got a lot of elk and a lot of older age class animals, and those are the animals that you're preferring to go after, whether it's for you, for your clients, the clients want a big bull. You want to chase the big bulls. You went to San Carlos, you were out for your own. This is where you personally were after your personal big bulls. You drew a Utah tag. So Utah, Utah tag. So you were out there for your personal uh, hunt enjoyment. And then the OT6 
you are now in charge of the hunt programs there. So whether you're talking about the landowners or whether you're talking about the ranching for wildlife folks, and we'll get to that in a second. You're, again, everybody that's that's a player on the landscape of hunting on that ranch is wanting the older age class animal or or maybe in the ought six case, maybe you have a, a management bull that, you know, is an older age class bull, but yet he doesn't he's not going to score, you know, 380 plus to where you're like, all right, we can you know let somebody take that one out or whatever. But then likewise, up in Montana, when you went and tagged along with your friends up there, same thing. Everybody was out after these older age class bulls. The thing about going after old, older age class bulls, you are going to engage and you're going to encounter and you're going to have to wade through a whole piss pile of younger age class bulls. So for the people that are, are listening to this and, say, and thinking to themselves, well, what happened? This is where I go back to, uh, doesn't, I don't, we'll hold off to that. We'll hold off on that rabbit hole in a minute. There's people that will automatically think, well, if you're, if you're only hunting uh, limit, highly limited draw areas, are you hunting these high prestige, um, you know, reservations or these big private ranches? Well, that, that doesn't translate into what things happen on the landscape in public over-the-counter units. Hunting pressure is absolutely going to change what you encounter on the landscape. And it will change the mindset of the animal that you're after on their self-preservation and their relative level of trust when they hear something. But that doesn't change underlying elk behavior. And especially when we're talking about underlying elk behavior, what is the mindset and the behavior of a two-year-old bull versus a four-year-old bull, versus an eight-year-old bull, or a 12-year-old bull, they're all, elk are going to be elk. How they engage the landscape is, yes, there's going to be differences there. But when you start calling them, communicating with them, and trying to convince them to go from where they are to your location, there's, I'm sorry, there's a hell of a lot of relevant overlap, you know, and, and again, you and I've seen in Arizona in unit nine, the sheer number of people that are out there in the field and the vehicles and everything else and all the, all the diff, the roads and trails and everything. Unit nine has a reputation of big bulls and, and a lot of elk and all that type of stuff. But what I don't think people realize is just how much, how, how quote unquote hammered by people that area is same thing. I had my experience down in seven West blown away that, I mean, you're not going to get away from people. Yeah. And every set of campers has an elk bugle and a hoochie mama. And, you know, everyone that lives close by from Flagstaff drives out there to hear the elk and they're calling at the elk and bugling at the elk. The one thing that a lot of the areas that I have hunted don't have are where you've got to hike four or five hours just to get up into the basin. And then once you get up in there, then, okay, now you're elk hunting. I've had the luxury of hunting in these areas where you literally can drive down the road, get out, maybe even roll down the window, hear bulls bugling and take off and start chasing them. A lot of times in Idaho and a lot of times in 
Montana and different places, you have a couple of hour hike just to get into where the elk are at. I start right when I get out of my truck, but that doesn't mean that the elk that I'm have listened to for my whole life aren't the same elk. They just are, our elk are used to more people, whereas maybe a backcountry area in Colorado up in a high basin, they never hear or see a vehicle. But that doesn't mean those elk are necessarily harder to call in than the elk in Unit 9. The elk in Unit 9 have heard every single sound. As soon as they start bugling, they're harassed morning and night. So you still have to be really good to get them to do what you want to do. Well, and, and um, that was going to, and I'm glad you brought that up, is because that is literally the case. Is some people think that, well, I'm, you know, a unit nine doesn't translate to the maroon bells of Colorado. It doesn't in a fact of like hiking to them and getting to them. And then in the maroon bells, you might get one chance in a week. Whereas, you know, the places I've been, I have more chances in the first day before lunch than a lot of guys will get the whole season. So what? it comes in my mind, it comes down to how many at bats, how many times have you been up to the plate to be able to try and encounter and use your strategy or tactic to get that elk to do what you want it to do? And I mean, I've just had a lot of at-bats. So I can totally understand when people think that their do-it-yourself backpack style, you know, backcountry hunt doesn't relate, but I would still argue that elk are elk and, you know, would you rather a guy, you know, that needs to hit, hit a base hit for your team to win the game? Would you rather the guy that's had, you know, seven at bats, or would you rather have the guy that's been to the plate 3000 times? That's kind of how I, well, so, and I, but thing, I get it. And I don't discredit a lot of those guys have to really, really work hard to hike and, you know, backpack and stay, you know, live on their back for a week just to get a encounter. I don't discredit that at all, um, but I don't think, you know, taking some of the experience that I've had over the last 25 years and saying it doesn't apply, I don't think that's completely fair either. Well, and the other thing, the two that people don't consider, and you just touched on it, is, yeah, Arizona has a lot more animals. Maybe, maybe it has a lot more animals, and maybe there's a hell of a lot more older age class bulls, but how many times were we out there at four o'clock in the morning? pitch black, listening to the bulls. We know exactly which bull we want to go after. It's pitch black. So we have to wait until it starts to get a little bit lighter till we get. And then all of a sudden a side-by-side -side rolls up. How many times did we laugh at, at the, at the electronic caller? The, the, the engine of the, I mean, it's there's the side-by-side -side is they, they kill yeah, the, the engine. engine the still ticking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the lights are still on. They, there's, like literally people are driving down the road with full on floodlights on their side by side. The engine's still running. They all of a sudden they pull out an electronic call or they're calling. What happens to the animals that were sitting there listening to getting ready to go? Shrip, shut their mouths, turn around, and pew, there they go. They're they're out of that meadow and they're on the mood. Move. Awesome. Now, guess what we have to do? Now in the Foot pitch race. black, yeah, exactly. Now these guys, these they had no clue that the elk were even there. They did, I mean. So 
It's just a trade-off on what type of defense pressure. Pre- yes, that you're the pressure that your animals are used to. Because quite honestly, the animals in unit nine, or maybe, and, and I don't know about San Carlos, but nine, maybe even some of Utah, um, they're used to all that activity. But man, that makes them highly discerning on what they're going to respond to. Somebody pulls a, a bugle out or a, a cow call, and they're like, oh, well, that's a car, that's a two-year-old Carlton such and such read. Mm, I don't want, I mean, they've heard it. Like you said, they've heard it. And, and how many times have I talked about it, you know, for the public land hunter that talks about, oh, you know, I was out if there's bull, it was called shy bulls. And about, okay, well, hold on a minute. The average age class of the bulls that you're going out on that over-the-counter unit is a two-and-a-half-year-old bull. How educated is that they bull? They can't be. No, they can't be. But that 15-year-old cow that he's tailing around with, now that's a different story. She does have the experience. She darn well knows what's going on. In the case of Arizona, now you have an 8, 10, 12-year-old bull that, okay, now you do have an educated bull and you have the 15 plus year old cows that are out there with it. So yes, you have more opportunity. You have the ability to get at bats. You have the ability to go chase around a 380 class bull. But now what do you have? You have a higher level of education of that animal. I could argue in some cases, people that want to go into this backcountry areas and they encounter a group of elk, those elk may have way less interaction with humans I'm not talking about scent control. If, if they smell you, okay, that's that's a different part ballpark. But if they don't smell you, they don't see you approach, and you engage them vocally, quite honestly, I'm going to make the argument sometimes they are the animals that are easier to call in than the ones that are used to all the people. And so yeah, I think one of the have, things they, that makes they it they tough, haven't though. had as many bats at with hunt with, with humans, you know. Yeah, I, I think one of the hard parts is, you know, getting to some of those elk and those elk have gotten pushed up in some of those areas that are so remote that the challenge for one is just finding them. Number two, once you find them, then getting in and, you know, using those tactics. But a lot of times it's the only elk in the basin. So you're so scared to do anything because that's it. That's your only game. And if you screw that game up, you got to pull out and go to a whole new basin. And whereas in Arizona, you just, you know, you boogie a mile the opposite way, get in the truck, go another direction. And you're into all of a sudden a whole bunch of different elk. So half the battle sometimes is just finding these elk on these public land, do it yourself style hunts. Um, but again, you know, I don't know which direction you necessarily want to go with this. I think you I think you want to get into my philosophy and my methods and all that. But, um, you know, I feel for the guys that, you know, work their butt off three hours, they get up into a basin and there's already two guys there and it's done. Like in Arizona, you'll have 10 guys all around and you can still make things work because there are elk. They're used to people. You can bounce around. You do, you get two or three hunters in a basin and, you know, Colorado up in the high country. And I mean, they'll just zip up and be gone. And, and I will say, and a lot of times because of that, like you said, it, it's not, and, and we can separate the calling on that. They just are not used to human 
presence. They're not used to that. They're not going to put up with it. They're not going to put up with it. So that's where it becomes critical on don't screw it up. The, you know, when, when you do engage it. Um, but a lot of times that has to, I mean, like you said, finding them number one, wrestling with the wind. I mean, that's the other thing too, is in, you know, obviously in Arizona, you got to play the wind and everything else, but in some of these mountain units, and especially when you're in the back country, we had the luxury of in Arizona, in other places where you're going to have the camper, you can take a shower, you know, you at least clean up and at least keep yourself somewhere. You go in the back country, you're not going to be able to do that. So scent control is massive. Playing the wind is going to be massive, but yeah, you have to, you're going to have to be a little bit more judicious on, on what you say and why you say it and how you engage it. And that literally is the segue because yes, I want to get into why do you call the way you do? Because you have had an opportunity over a long period of time to play with a lot of different animals and a lot of different animals across a wide spectrum of age classes, across a wide spectrum of cow-calf ratios, a, a wide spectrum of habitats, a wide spectrum of seasons, but yet you still have settled on, at least for right now, what I would generally classify as more of a cow calling, a cow call focused strategy. Is that correct or, or, or am I off base? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for years, you know, I've spent so many years videoing elk and just trying to video them and get them doing their thing and just watching and listening and just being around them. And people are kind of shocked when they go with me, how little I actually call. Um, you know, they're kind of blown away. They just think that I call, 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 and that's not true. I do a lot of observing and, you know, just, just monitoring them. Um, but what I learned real quick, um, is that I believe that bugling at the bulls that I'm going after more times than not does not work. Um, I, I feel like, coming to Arizona with your bugle and high and high, uh, anticipation of bugling bulls in, I think you're going to be sadly disappointed. I think you're going to be, uh, I think you're not going to have much success. Yes. They'll answer a bugle just to get, you know, just to, if you don't hear anything, you get a bugle, you bugle just to get them kind of going and talking. Um, but this whole, you know, early on, bless their hearts The you know, some of the old timers, you know, I think a lot of it was marketing, you know, they got into this, we're going to market the aggression, we're going to market the aggressiveness, and they want to fight, they, these bulls want to fight, I would, uh, you know, certainly there are bulls that want to fight, there absolutely are, and there are certain times that bulls that maybe aren't fighters want to fight. But in general, my observation is that most elk respond better to cow calling. I think you could take a couple of the best buglers in the world um, and you take a couple of the best cow callers in the world and take them to any elk environment. In my opinion, the cow callers are going to call in more elk to closer range than the guys that are going to bugle. Um, I just had a guy last week who is a predominant elk calling champion literally say cow calling doesn't work for me bugling is the only thing that that gets bulls to come in i i don't really know what to say other than 
that is not my experience at all. Where I've hunted the last 25 years, sweet talking and cow calling is hands down a much better approach to calling older bulls, younger bulls, bulls in general. Um, and I think people this, I mean, I think people bugle too much. I think it hurts them. I think if they would put the bugle away, um, bugle just to get them going, um, bugle sparingly, they're going to do a whole lot better. I, I have people that argue with me all the time and that's great that, you know, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but my, you know, 25 years of doing 25 plus years of doing this would tell you people bugle way too much. They're not as good as they think they are. Their bugle doesn't sound very good. It doesn't sound realistic. I think you can cow call and get away with, um, a shorter sound. So it's not as you can't depict the elk can't go. That's fake. That's not real. Whereas you light into this big giant bugle and growling and chuckling and the whole nine yards and they listen, 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 they pick it out and go, that isn't real. I'm not going to that. So. And with, let's, let's, let's talk about Arizona and let's separate then um, the public land that you've been, that we both have been on. And then let's, let's contrast that with San Carlos because the same thing, if you look across and again, I'm going to have Steve on and, and we're going to, cause I know Steve has changed his philosophy a little bit, maybe, um, maybe, and I'll, I'm going to dive in that with him. But if you look at all the people that we've, you know, all the other outfitters that are down in nine or that we know, and, you know, it's not that we all go help each other, but you, you talk, you know, and, and you, you hear what they are and you kind of run into them on the landscape. Same thing. I've noticed that there are very few of the high performing successful guides down there that do a lot of bugling other than maybe they'll send a a contact bugle out there just to get a response. That's where he is. Okay. Now we go in and play. Now what you did sit now, this is something that I think does need to be um, touched on. You made a good point of what you do and, and you do like to sit and observe. You do like to sit behind glass a a fair amount of time, a lot of time and watch, put eyes on, watch what those animals do, how they move, where are they going? What are the, you know, basically pick apart all the details that you can out of that animal or that group of animals. Um, So, the clarification there is depending on the habitats that may or may not be possible. So Arizona in some of these units, yeah, there's high points, there's open pinion juniper, there's, there's places you can sit behind glass and you can make that work for you. Uh, the ought six ranch. I mean, how many times have, you know, you've posted pictures where you're up on vantage points and you're sitting behind a spotting scope and you're watching and you're watching those meta, where are those bulls coming out of, where are they going back into during the day? How far are they going in there? Now you get to an idea of, of their movement cycle, how they want to move across that landscape, how far they're moving into the timber or not. So that's huge. That and, Yeah. And I, I mean, I think knowing where they're going and why they want to go certain places and being able to know their travel patterns and why they want to travel in certain 
areas, why they, you know, what they're doing is paramount to then trying to then communicate with them and call them to you and have them leave what they're doing and come to you. I think one of the reasons that I have had so much success in calling elk in close and having a lot of encounters is I really kind of understand when the time to call is, when not to call, where they're going, why I wouldn't call if they're headed out and lined out this way. I'm going to try and position myself. You know, I've, I've, I've learned myself, you know, calling behind elk and trying to trail them doesn't work. I've seen hunters literally, I know if some guy swings around over here, that he's going to be calling to them and they're just going to stay right out in front of them. So I'm going to circle around because he's going to push them right to me. And, and, and I think a big part of it is knowing why they're moving, where they're moving, what time they're moving, what they're thinking, you know, kind of understanding that before you just start firing away with a bunch of calls. I think people in general call way too much. Well, and like we've seen before, and we've always talked about it, and it seems to be a, a common philosophy is, you know, don't start calling if you don't, especially with cow calling stuff, don't start calling in, until you're within, you know, a, a certain, you know, people say, oh, it's within the X or in the whatever, however you want to collect. You're within your striking distance. Now, obviously the terrain and the, and the, the vegetation in there, maybe you're talking, I'm, you don't start calling until you're 80 yards in or you're maybe 180 yards, but there you're, you're getting in as close to that group as possible before you actually start calling in those cases where we have, which one, that one, the, uh, my last high country bowl that I killed, same thing, high country, same. I'll sit three, four, five days, just sitting and watching before I go in there because the wind currents, and I want to know what the hell's going on with the wind currents. How are they coming and going? Where are they betting all that? So that way I can figure out how do I get in there, get in close the first time to engage them? Whereas right. this is this is a, a disadvantage of being in those habitats where you don't have the ability to put eyes on. Because what we end up having to kind of default or most people default to is, okay, well, I'm going to start prospecting and just call it. Well, you're, you're calling, but again, if we know, and, and people, not just me, not just you, this is common, generally common knowledge these days of if you call, especially if you're going to use aggressive calling strategies, tactics, vocalizations, if you call too much, too far away from that group of animals, you just tip your hand and they will just, they might vocalize to you, but they just avoid you. Well, when we're out there prospecting in that thick cover, sometimes that's the problem. If it, depending on how we engage those vocalizations and what we do, we're not close enough. We don't, we didn't know that we weren't close enough. We were trying to locate, trying to find them or whatever, but invert in, invariably what we did is we just tipped our hand. And now that, that group of animal or that group of animals is adjusting themselves on the landscape whether physically as they move or behaviorally in how they're processing things based on what they're hearing on the on the landscape. So your and the funny, and I, and I always think this is funny because I still to this day, remember you sitting on one knob, I'm sitting on the other knob, you're sitting behind the glass 
we're talking and there's bulls screaming everywhere down below us in the pinion juniper. And you're like, no, I haven't seen anything yet, but I'm like, but there's a bunch of elk down there. Let's just, I just, I just want to bomb in. I'm like, I don't care if I lay eyes. We'll just call it every one. We'll just call that one. No, call the next one. No, call the next one. No, no. Jay's up there like, no, no, no. We're going to sit and watch. We're going to sit and watch. We're yeah. going to sit and watch. Well, I think one of the things, I think every elk hunter, every elk caller, doesn't even have to be an elk hunter. Every elk caller comes to a different point in their life where there's times when you just want to get in there and just call. Doesn't matter if they're young bulls, medium bulls, old bulls, doesn't matter. You just want to have fun and enjoy it. And then you, there's sometimes when <laughs> you want to, you know, get a really big one and, and, or, you know, the biggest bull on the mountain. And a lot of times I've found that the best way to do that is to find them first, put your eyes on them figure that one out. And then you eliminate all that other stuff where you don't have to go from bull to bull to bull. So you use your eyes. Um, a lot of guys used to use trail cameras. And so if they're after a big one, you might as well start where a big one's at. Um, but sometimes it is refreshing just to go and call and not worry about size, you know, being a guide for so long, a lot of what I did is my, my, client wanted a big bowl. So I found that it wasn't very efficient just to dive in the middle of them and start weeding through bowls. It's a lot of fun, but you weren't really achieving the goal of what the client wanted. And, you know, or what then, they thought that what they thought they or, wanted, or yeah. they thought they wanted. And, and, you know, we had some success early and got some big ones on the ground. And then all of a sudden everyone hires you because they want a big one. So then when you're glassing for the first six days and they're like, we haven't even encountered an elk. And I'm like, yeah, that's because we're going after the big one. And we got to, we, when we encounter them, it's going to be sh probably short and sweet and over yep. with. Yep. One um, and you're going to get one chance. We better make it happen, you know, be the, as efficient and effective as we can. Um, but sometimes it's not as fun. It's, well, it's a lot of, a lot of fun to dive in the middle of them and just call bulls and have them screaming and running in. And, um, in those but it's, where it's, where it's hot and dry and literally the best tactic. If you, okay. So you want to, you want a 380 or better. Okay. And I've, I've used this example before that one year that I was down there, my client was like, I want a 380 or better. Okay. Well that particular year, based on our friends that are outfitters in the area comparing notes on that when they were running at, at this point combined up, there had to have been probably more than a thousand game cameras going, you know. Yeah. There may uh, only be two of those in the whole correct. unit. The, the 380 or better represented 0.8% of the population of bulls in the unit. 0.8. And by the time we got going and, and there was already a couple of them dead. So now what would be down to 0 0.4, 0 0.5, 0.6% of the population? Well, okay, that's what you want. No one's talking. It's brutally hot, dry. Water's the key. So guess what we're going to do? We're going to go glass in the mornings or whatever. We'll figure it. And then the rest of the day, we're going to go sit water. Man, that's a completely different mindset. People just lose their, they're like, this is boring. I hate this. I want to go chase bugles. What bugles? There are no bugles. You're, you're in the landscape just like I am. You, there are no bugles. So it's either climbing up on top of that mountain and glassing down and trying to lay eyes on them or go sit in, or, or how about this? You go sit that water where we think that one's living and I'll go up and I'll hike that and I'll glass. It's not the sexy. So 
again, not to go off into that tangent, but that's, that's why I prefer, I liked the clients oftentimes that I got were we want to learn, we want to go have fun. We just want to absolutely let's go. I, yeah. We killed a mid three fifties bowl on that one. One of my other clients killed the juice. He was just over 300. It just, let's go have some fun. Let's go in there and, and have some fun. Now to your credit, and I will eat this one. I love to go. I'm the guy that loves to go in and call them and wade through all the bulls. However, I do too. The, the risk is the risk is you get yourself in a situation where you start calling in those satellite bulls and you start calling in those secondary bulls. And then one spooks who's associated with the, the primary herd. What is he going to do? He's going to turn around and take off running and he's going to circle back and he's going to go run right into that group. And his body language is I'm scared. Something scared me. I'm coming to the group for safety. And what are the cows going to do? What the hell's he running from? Oh crap. He's nervous. He's scared. Everybody. Now all of a sudden that pick that whole group gets up and here we go. Now they're moving again. They're on edge. They know they have no clue in the world that you're there on the landscape. All they know is, all of a sudden, this elk just came hauling ass into our group, scared, looking for safety within the, in our group. We have no idea if, if something's following him or her or whatever. So let's, let's, let's just let's separate ourselves from that area. Let's move off. So it can be a risky play. And it's, it is, if you have the patience and the terrain and habitat allow it to, the more time you can sit behind glass and figure stuff out, I, I I have to admit, for what you're talking about, when you want to target a specific animal, man, sometimes, you know, what do they say? You know, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Sometimes you're beef, you'll be, you will fill your tag quicker if you take several days of not elk hunting and actually elk glassing than you right. will if you just go in there and fart around for two weeks chasing elk around. I think too, you can, in areas that are thick, um, you know, you always say you can't judge a bull by his bugle. Um, but I would argue that you, you can judge a lot of bulls by their bugle and you can eliminate them right away just by listening to a lot of them. And you can tell that they're not mature and they're pretty whistly and high pitch and just kind of young bulls. And maybe they bugle frequently and, um, so there are things you can do other than glassing as well. Um, you know, and maybe just trying to, you know, if you hear four or five bulls bugling, let's say, well, the one that's probably bugling that sounds deeper and sounds growly and has some, you know, like you can just tell his body cavities, a bigger bodied elk. Let's go look at him first, first, see what he is. And then kind of work our way on. And then we've all heard the bulls that, you know, are just, we, you just know, are a raghorn just by the way, the frequency of his bugle and, and the way he's bugling. A lot of times, most of the time, I would say guys that have heard quite a few elk can kind of go, okay, that's probably not a very mature bull. And, that's and it, it's not, it's not always, but um, that's a good rule of thumb is if you do have a bunch of bulls bugling, try and get your eyes on the best sounding one first. And then, okay, okay. Well, there's two or three others that let's go put our eyes on those. Um, and the way I like elk hunt is I like to sneak in and if they're bugling, just sneak in and, you know, go quiet and try and get in there. And if I can get my eyes on them and go, nope, he's not what we're after again, 
if I spend the time calling and messing with them, I'm wasting time. If I'm able to get my eyes on them and go, that's not even a bull we are going to consider. I've just saved a bunch of time by not engaging and not calling to that elk. And, you know, so if I was offering advice to people out there, especially if they come to Arizona is don't mess with elk that you don't think you want them to shoot. If, if you will shoot any bold and yeah, mess with them all. Um, and you know, but I think there is a way to weed through if you're looking for that older age class bull, you know, don't go after the, the ones that don't sound like older age class bulls first. Yeah. Now I will say that is going to come with experience that that's going to come with time and that's going to hear a lot of them. Yeah. You got to hear, you've got to hear a lot of them and you got to hear a lot of different ones in, in order for you to, it's just like me. Uh, luckily now with, with the internet and just the popularity of it, when I talk to people about my deer hunts and I say, well, we're going to, you know, I'm looking at a four-year-old or a five-year-old people are like, how in the heck can you tell what age that animal is? Okay. If, if you know what you're looking for, I can look at how their neckline is. I can look at how their stomach is. I can look at their shoulder development. I can look at the hump. I can, I get, there's, there's body, not their antlers, body, physical body characteristics that I can look at and say, okay, he should fall in this bracket roughly about this age class. But that comes with being able to lay eyes on a bunch of different animals over time and getting good at that. Same thing with bugles. So there's no, there's no question that there's going to be some people that have not had an opportunity to get into a lot of elk over many years that when you first start out, it's going to be a little tricky, but yes, there are, yes, I will agree with you. If, if we hear a just a big nasty growler versus a wimpy little squealer, I'm going to go look at the growler first. However, I've been fooled by growlers sure. that are younger age class bulls. And then I've also heard wimpy worthless bugles and I paid no attention and all of a sudden bull steps out. Well, that, that I wish I had it on video. There's, there's case in point last year, the bull, I, my public land hunt in Colorado last year, I waded through a bunch of younger bulls that I just was not interested in, in filling my tag on. Um, I called this small five by five in, he came in, I got a little bit of video footage with him. He had bugled or I thought he had bugled just on the other side of this rock pile and down over the slope. He comes in, I see him. He's not anything I want to shoot. So I'm just going to play with him. I'm just going to video him. Well, he came in and then he turned and just kind of went behind some stuff. And I'm thinking, you know what, if I can move from here and literally, I don't know, 10 steps, if I can move from my location here and just get on the other side of this little clump or whatever, it would be legitimately, it would be a better place to video from and I could get some really killer footage of this little meadow with these ponderosas and blah. And my mind, I'm thinking, okay, he's not a bull I want to go after. Cause he, I heard him squeal. Eh, he's, I saw him, he came in, I'm going to reposition the camera and then I'm going to call him back in. And then while I'm messing with the camera, I hear the bugle again. I'm like, all right, cool. He's right there. And I look up in a 360 bull is just like popping over the, the rock pile, looking at me, setting the camera. I'm like, God, son of a done, done. No, the squealer wasn't him. It was the big honking freaking. That's the one I would have put my tag on. 
So I've been fooled. Now, one good rule is don't ever listen. And this is just a little aside, my opinion. Don't listen to the whistly part. Listen to the, and I don't even care about the beginning. I don't even care if that bull goes and starts and then goes. I want to hear what he sounds like when he finishes. Yeah. What is the, when he equalizes the pressure out of his lungs, is it a, or is it a, you know, that if, if he ends it and it goes deep, bingo. Now we're, now we've got a bigger body. And then the other one too, if I've got a bunch of bulls bugling and that one up there, all he does is just a, he's all he is is a chuckler every time i'll every time i'm going straight to the i don't i'm straight to the chuckler but so okay the other the other thing too and and this reminded me of you because you did a lot of sheep stuff and i i know for a fact that it's it's parallel what you said is if you want a particular animal if you want to go and and get that out don't spend your time playing with animals that you know that you don't want to go after it's very similar to sheep and people find themselves in this situation all the time. You're going out there, you're, you're, you've got a ram tag, and you want to find a smoker of a ram. You're not seeing anything. You're not seeing anything. You're not seeing anything. All of a sudden, boom, here's a bunch of lambs and ewes. Okay, well, there's a bunch of sheep there. Well, there's no rams. Okay, and then you look, and no rams, no rams. And all of a sudden, you find a band of rams, and they're all four to six-year-old, maybe seven-year-old rams. Okay, maybe that's not the ram that you want to take. And so you want to go find some bigger rams. But guess what? You're not seeing any rams. The number of people that will swing back around to go watch that teenage group because I'm seeing rams. I'm watching rams. I'm looking at rams. I'm Oh, that's all. Okay. They're not the rams that you want. And quite honestly, the rams that you want are not going to be hanging out most of the time with that teenage group. So, so it's, it's fine that you found that, that band of Rams. If there's not a Ram in there, then you want leave, leave, go, go somewhere else. And like you said, you may spend five days not seeing anything. And then all of a sudden you're, you found the one or here's three of them that you're like, oh. yeah. So you're right. I, I love to call and I love to play. And that is, I know that's a fault of mine. And, and I've been fortunate to kill some really nice elk, maybe not as big as yours, some of them, but I've killed some decent elk that I'm happy with. And to this day, I still love to play. So I think recognizing bugles, that's going to, that's going to come with, with time. At, like you said, for your terminology, you're at bats, but I want to, okay. So let's take a step back. So when you were guiding, did you ever, let me play devil's advocate. So you started off cow calling, you found yourself successful with the cow calling, and that's all you stuck with. Did you ever test playing with yeah. you? Yeah, I mean. Did you ever really test the envelope to see if, okay, you were. Yeah, you were, I mean, there's times when bugling in certain situations, bugling's the best thing you can do. Certain situations. But I would argue that the majority of situations you encounter, cow calling is going to work in more situations than bugle. And that's just the way I roll. There's times when all you have to do is bugle and that bull's going to come charging in. But one of the things that I have a problem with the buglers are most of the buglers, Chris, are not that good, including myself. I'm decent. I'm average. I, well, I'm probably better than average, but I'm, I'm decent at bugling. 
But I, I mean, in my opinion, Steve Chapel is the best elk caller all around of anybody that's ever blown an elk call. I've been with Steve. We used to be partners in the guide business. I think he's the best elk caller on the planet. He's a phenomenal bugler. I've seen him cow call and I've seen him bugle. He calls in more bulls by cow calling than bugling. And so what I'm telling you is even the best buglers in the world, if you listen to them and you hear them out in the woods, if I took a random 10 guys or gals and said, all right, let's get guys out here bugling and let's get real bulls bugling. They are able to pick out the hunters bugling yes. almost every time. Yes. If I took the best cow callers and then put cow elk out there and said, okay, pick out those cows, which one's the human and which one's the cows, they would not do as well. Meaning they wouldn't be able to pick them out and discern them like they would the buglers. The best buglers in the world still can get picked out as it's not real and it's fake. The best buglers in the world still cannot duplicate the sound as well as the best cow callers in the world. I think a lot of it has to do with the shortness of the call. The longer you call, the more chance I can say, or anyone can say that isn't real. The shorter the call, the harder it is for the ear to go. That's not real or that's real. And, and there's, less, short. there's less time in that sequence for you. That's to, what I mean. There's less well, time for more, the ear to identify and, and less time for you to make a mistake. The more you're, you're in, engaged with it, you can foible. Whereas right. you're just real quick. And that's why I think, you know, guys that are really good at chuckling, I think you can do really well with the bugle and call bulls. in. my argument is, buglers typically are going to call in young bulls. There are times when they know it's a big mature bull and they get in tight and they're able to, you know, threaten that bull. And a lot of those bulls are wired that they are going to fight. So they get in close and it works great. But I just, I've, I'm adamant about it. I will argue with any bugler out there. I mean, the great cow callers will call in more elk than the buglers. I will argue with anybody till I'm till they're blue in the face. Now, and and I I again I am biased. Obviously, I am. But you and I both know numerous people that have been in the competition circuit that love a bugling strategy that have drawn a unit nine tag or a unit 10 tag or whatever, and struggled to perform using those strategies. They ended up having to shift either, either they didn't fill a tag or they had to shift their, their strategies in calling and, and lean heavier on that cow calling strategy. So over time, I mean, that's the thing is, well, there it is. So now here's a question. Did you, obviously, I'm, I'm guessing the answer is going to be yes, but talk to me about what you saw in San Carlos. Same thing? Well, the elk on San Carlos are psychotic. I mean, they just go absolutely nuts and they're super aggressive. And so I would say bugling would probably work a little bit better there. Um, 
They don't get near the pressure. There's a ton of elk. So I think one of the dynamics is when you have a ton of elk and not lots of pressure, they don't associate a bad bugle necessarily with a human, where if you take elk that are really pressured in a bad bugle, they're like, man, I've heard that one 40 times that one. No, that's not right. Um, the San Carlos bulls, I would say they do like to fight They're big, heavy antler, you know, big bulls, even the ones that don't have a, you know, symmetrical configuration, they're just kind of gnarly bulls. They do like to fight. They do have a big, um, high end age class. So they have a lot of old mature bulls that's and that's, that's the difference is when okay. you get those bulls that are, you know, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old. Yeah. They, they get cranky and they'll like to fight pretty good. Whereas the young bulls that are say six years, seven years and under they've got, they don't like to fight. Yeah. And well, in most of the bulls that you'll be chasing in Arizona and unit nine, some of the best units, a lot of them are only three, four, five, six years old. So they're not necessarily going to come charging into this growly bugle that you throw out there. Um, That's okay. So like I said, that one year that, you know, I, that my guy wanted that one, it was 0.8% of the population of 380 or better. Now, granted, you can have, you could probably have an eight-year-old bull. That's a 380 bull. Maybe if he's got great genetics, but you know, that eight plus year old bull was only 0.8% of the population. I've got to believe based on how San Carlos manages their deal, eight-year-old, let's just say 10-year-old bulls are probably a, a, a fair chunk of the age class of the bulls that are actually running the harems to where, yes, you're in a situation there where if an eight-year-old bull wants to have any cows, uh, they're already taken care of by the nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 year old bulls over there. So they're going to have to fight for them to get yeah, now all of a sudden it's a, it's a different ball game. Whereas if you have like one or two or just a handful of these mature bulls and then a whole bunch of younger age class bulls, no different story. Okay. So now this is where there's, this is the thing that makes elk calling still fun is there's obviously there's no, nothing is ever set in stone because I know that there are guys in Utah that, that do well bugling, you know, to a certain extent, but I know there's also a lot of the other guys that are in Utah, the same thing. If they're going to call bulls, they're focusing on those cow calling strategies. When you had your Utah tag, talk me through that season. I mean, you were after, so, okay. I, I think it's, I mean, you had some good intel. You had some friends that lived there that had good intel on a freaking absolute 400-inch giant bull that, I mean, you had some good intel. And you had yeah. uh, actually a couple chances at this bull. Yeah. Me I drew I drew in 16. I drew the beaver tag. And my friend Tony Lyle lives right there and knows the unit like the back of his hand. And he had prior year, couple year knowledge of this one particular bull that was a seven by seven. He was a narrow kind of narrow frame, but long beam, long points, seven by seven that the governor's tag, uh, hunter actually, oh, three, four weeks later after my hunt ended up killing. And I think he went four twelve or four ten or something like that. And 
um, he, he had really good knowledge of the area where this bull was not, uh, where the bull summered, but he's like, Jay, the, when the rut hits the bull, the last couple of years has been right here. And so I just said, I, I want to focus on that bull. Um, I'm, I've shot some really good bulls and I'd love to shoot another bull over 400. And, um, you know, if he showed me pictures and videos and I'm like, let's go after that one. That's the biggest one, you know, of, and he said, yes. So we focused on that area and, and, um, we had still not seen the bull and, but he's like, he will show up and he's going to show up right here. And it's kind of thick junipers. And he's like, he's going to show up here. He's, he's going to come. I know he didn't get killed. He's going to be here. So, I mean, the first encounter that I had at the bull, I was by myself and speaking of, you know, kind of weenie bugles, it was, you know, that Utah's season is early. So, um, I think I got there on September 1st. It started like the third week of August. I think it ran to the 15th or 14th or something like that. Um, maybe even earlier 13th. Anyway, it, it, in my opinion, ended too early. Um, but I was just in this juniper thicket and just heard this weeniest little whistly bull bugle. And I almost just thought, well, I'm not even going to mess with that thing. And I thought, well, I don't have anything else going on. I might as well just kind of see what's going on. So I just kind of kept just kind of easing up towards where I had heard the bugle and it's real thick junipers. And he, as I got closer, he, he just kind of whistled again and just a real faint, you know, just a weenie sounding like little dink. And I thought, well, I'll just play with this little bowl and to, to, you know, <laughs> I did not think in any way that it was the bowl. So I was really not on like point and I made the mistake of not being completely ready. And I started calling to this bowl cow calling. I just threw out a couple cow calls and he whistled back just a real, just real whistly sound. And I thought, well, he's interested, but again, so I've heard him bugle three times now. And I thought he's just, just a bull. And I made the mistake of calling to that bull, not set up in a good position because I yeah, didn't you just think wanted, it was you him. To see him. Yeah. Yeah. I just call him and see him. Just going to mess with this elk. Just going to mess with this bull. And then the bulls kind of, I can tell he's bugles again. So he's now bugled four times and he's working his way towards me. And at that point I think, oh man, he's coming. I better get kind of in a better spot. So I kind of sidestep, try and get in a better spot. And then I'm looking through a juniper and I hear him coming, walking and he's coming and I'm looking through the juniper and I, he kind of had these distinct front ends and he's narrow and he's walking right at me and he's kind of just kind of just doing that little, just little, where are you kind of, and I'm like, I'm staring face to face with the bull that I'm here for. Yeah. Here he is. He's all by himself. And he's coming to me. The first time I even called to him, he's coming right at me. And he's like, it's 70, 60, 70 yards, maybe 80 yards, but he's coming. And I mean, I see it and it's him and I know it's him. Now I can't move because I've already missed my window to get in the position, which is, which, which I never call to an elk unless I'm in position. 
that I need to be in in order to shoot him. This time I did, I made the mistake. So he's coming at me. Fortunately, I was able to knock an arrow, have an arrow knocked. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. When his kind of eyes get behind kind of the base of the tree, I go ahead and draw back. There's one juniper tree between me and him. Now he's probably at 30 yards and he's still coming head on, coming, coming, coming. I draw back. I'm fully drawn because all he has to do is walk by that juniper to the left, walk by and kind of come right at me to the right. But either way, I'm going to be able to shoot this bullet, you know, 10 to 15 inside of 20 yards, no matter what he does. That bulls just keeps coming, keeps coming, keeps coming. I'm at full draw and he comes and now he's standing on the other side of the juniper tree. I'm looking through it. He's looking for the sound that he heard and he's looking at full draw. He's looking through the tree. I'm at full draw. And I mean, I'm thinking I'm going to have a 10 yard shot, no matter which way this goes, I'm just going to swing one way or another and have a 10 yard shot. He stops. I'm at full draw and he's just sitting there staring through the tree. And I mean, it's, I'm sitting there going, Tony's going to kill me because this is the bull. This is the one we're after. The one I said, I don't want to go after those 360 and 370 and 380 bulls that his brother and dad were bringing back on video. And like, look at this bull. We can go. I'm like, no, I want this one. Golden opportunity. The bull's dead. If I, you know, didn't have my thumb up my rear. <laughs> I'm full draw. He's standing there, standing there, standing there. He's looking, 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 looking. I'm thinking, you're dead. You are dead. You go left, you're right, you're dead. What's if, the bull do? If what's the bull do? He backs up about three or four steps, turns with the tree perfectly, and walks dead yeah. away. Never even had a chance. He could have gone two steps this way, two steps this way, and I can shoot him all day long. He backs up like a cat, turns and walks dead away. That was the first encounter I had with him. And it was like, I mean, I completely blew it. And I blew it because of, you know, I told you, you can judge an elk by their bugle. One thing I would argue is early season. It's hard because they all sound, you know, they, sometimes the big bulls are not fired up. They're not, they don't have their, you know, aggressive bugle. They don't have that, you know, they're not firing on all cylinders. They're just kind of in the, Hey, where are you kind of stage? Um, whereas, you know, towards the end of, of, of the season, even a five point can be horsed out and sound like a big bull. Cause that's, they've been bugling so much. Their voice is, is hoarse, if that makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, misjudge the bugle, call the bull in. All I had to do was call in front of the, I had to be standing in front of the tree he was in or to the left or to the right, where I could see what you call the doorway and he's dead. Um, and I didn't do it. And then I, I did end up, um, on the second to the last day, I had another great call in with them and I called them in, called his cow in and she actually came into like eight or 10 yards and he came in and was basically right on the back side of her. And I was just waiting for her to clear long story short, the bull got away, didn't get him. The auction hunter got him, and uh, he's a beautiful bull. Now 
with what you said in the beginning of the season. So I've made the argument in some cases, sometimes early season is a better time to use bull vocalizations because they're trying to pick, they figure out their pecking order. They're trying to figure out who's who on the map. They're not established. Yeah. They so, want to see who's around early season. I believe early season is a phenomenal time. If you want to bugle up some bulls to get bulls to come out of curiosity to, to see who's in the neighborhood. If you're think, not going out there and trying to be aggressive, you're using right. bull vocalizations, but you're not out this there. This is just a this is just a who's who's around checking out what bulls have moved into the area. This isn't a I'm coming in to fight. This is more I'm coming in to just see what's shaking. Exactly. As opposed to later in the season when the bulls, you know, already have their cows, everything's established, and you're able to get in close to that herd and challenge that bull make him think that you're a satellite bull coming in and, and, and you're somewhat fearless and you're not afraid of him. There's that time where, you know, fight or flight, um, you know, that, that it bugling can be very effective, but, but I still go back to cow calling in my opinion is the most efficient way to call most all bulls in and, and bugling and I, is and not are- as efficient. Yeah, there and, that, and that's the big one. And that number one right there, that has been the thing that I've always hammered home is efficiency. Efficiency. That's if you've got the older I get, the more I I'm try to be as efficient as I can, whether I'm fishing, whether I'm hunting, you know, deer, sheep, elk, turkey, whatever. I try and be efficient. Yes. The more efficient I can be, the more successful I usually am. So now on the odd six, you've had a chance to, the odd six, you guys run the management out there. You're setting how many bulls are going to be taken off of that ranch. You Five guys are, seasons, yeah. Yeah, so, and you guys are enrolled into the Ranching for Wildlife program in Colorado. So for anybody that's out of Colorado doesn't know, Ranching for Wildlife allows ranches to basically make a trade where they will allow a certain number of public hunters to come on to their property and hunt in exchange. The state gives them more flexibility with what they can do with some of their licenses and tags. So maybe you can hunt in the rut September with a rifle, or you can have an extended Caesar web. So it's a, it's a quid pro quo. So the state yeah. gets a little something, public land hunters get something, and then the ranch gets something. So it's a kind of a, a public private partnership on being able to utilize the ranch in a more flexible manner. With that being said, you have full exploration of, well, A, you have full experience on sitting and watching the bulls that you have on the ranch. Having at least five seasons now to to have history with certain bulls on the ranch and their age class. Watching how much conflict is on the landscape, how many fights are actually happening, who's bugling at what and all that type of stuff. You've maintained, so when you guys want to go hunt and when you guys want to go call and you guys want to go kill an animal, rifle is one thing. I mean, hell, you could set up on a point, wait for them to step into the meadow and boom, done. There you go. You don't have to do anything. But for the people that want to go out and bow hunt, again, here we are in a private ranch setting that you would think would lend itself to being, okay, I can go out and bugle my brains out and and have this great ooh-ah challenge. You know, I'm going to go challenge all these bulls and, you know, you're you have not changed your strategies 
No, I mean, I would say by monitoring them and knowing them and having the trail camera videos and watching their behavior in person day after day for five years, you know, for 45 days in a row, I certainly know certain bulls would be more susceptible to bugling. More bulls would be uh, susceptible to cow calling. I kind of get to know their behavior. I get to know how they kind of act and how aggressive they are. And the ones that, you know, you can sit there, you can learn so much by watching. It really helps when you can watch for five years, say, where you learn a bull and you learn he's always the aggressor. He's got his cows. And if any bull comes anywhere in the meadow or starts to come, he goes at them. He goes, he leaves his cows and he'll go 75, 80, hundred yards to say, get out of here, you know, leave, leave right now. And then you'll see the bulls that are regardless of size that have their cows. And all of a sudden some other bulls start bugling and he's got them over in the corner and he's being quiet and he's pushing them out, he doesn't want to fight at all. So, you know, if, if all hunters had the luxury of kind of knowing the personalities of each bull that they're after, they would be much more successful because I know there's bulls, you know, we have nicknames for them on the odd six that I know that if that bull's down in the meadow and he has cows and you want to call him in, you bugle at that bull and he will come to you. Yeah, you get set up on that or, on the backside of that juniper and just rip at just just for right. blow his eardrums out and get ready. But then there's another, you know, bulls where and and regardless of size, some of these are big. Let's say they're both big bulls, but one does not like that. He does not like to fight. He he's not a challenge. When other bulls come at him, he actually cowers and takes his cows and goes away. He ends up with all the cows, but they chase him. Then there's other bulls that, I mean, just leave those cows and will come chase a bull. I've seen them not only leave the cows, but chase a bull off like half mile, like way out of, you can't even hear him anymore. And then here he comes back in 15 minutes. He's back with the herd, but he's chased that bull out of the, out of the scene. All right. So out of, uh, when in a normal season, how many mature bulls are you guys inventorying and watching on the Ot six? I mean, when you say, mature, are we talking 25? I mean, we're talking, um, I don't know, 56 point bulls, um, you know, maturity. We're talking, you know, five, six year old bulls and older, you know, I'd All say right. 50, at least 50 of them. Yeah, that's fair. But and that's the thing is you're up there day and day, you know, you and Hunter, um, hell, maybe the landowners up. I mean, you, you've got eyes, you've got multiple people, multiple seasons. So you're, let's just say you're dealing, you're watching 50 different bulls and you're, you're explaining there the difference in personality. Now that, that I would say like 50 bulls that are, you know, we have nicknames for, and we know them and that are players yeah. on the landscape players on the landscape of course you're going to have the two-year-olds and the what they're right they're just riffraff just doing that we're talking 50 players that right okay personalities that that dovetails smack dab into what i've been talking about this year a couple of the different seminars that i've given um out of that 50 bulls it's your opinion but it's based on data what is the percentage you, you just outlined, you have those aggressive bulls and then you have those bulls that are not so aggressive. 
if you had to if you had to look at what the percentage if you just took those two categories an aggressive bull passive bull what's the percentage are are are, are most of the bulls on the outside I'd say, aggressive i'd say 25% are aggressive and 75% are passive okay that's actually more than i i thought it would be but okay all right but but again we're we're talking when you get that aggressive bull, you're talking a subset of just the bulls that are there to begin with. And, and that's the thing that I've always tried to hammer home is understanding the person, taking the moment, taking the time to try to understand, or at least give yourself a little bit of a, uh, an opportunity to try to tease out what the personality of the bull is you're going after. Because again, we go back to, and I know I'm biased. I, I, I clearly, I will, I will clearly recognize that and own it, but if you're the guy that's going to go into the back country and you just went five, eight miles back in, and there's one group of elk up on the mountain. Here's Jay looking at you, whether we're talking about the odd six, whether we're talking about Utah, whether we're talking about Arizona, we're talking about, you know, San Carlos. A smaller percentage of the animals on the landscape are those aggressive animals. And, and Jay, you're dealing with older age class animals, let alone the two-year-old. To where when you encounter an animal on the landscape, what are the actual physical odds that you're actually running across that aggressive animal that wants to come steamroll over top of you? And I well, think- and I think, too, you got to look at like, sorry to interrupt, but, oh, good. you know, when you get to watch them long enough, you see the bulls that bugle like crazy and you would think, oh, that's a really aggressive bull. But then you throw that aggressive loud talking, smack talking bull and all of a sudden a big, tough, mature bull walks out, that smack talker all of a sudden ends up walking and getting out on the edge. So he can talk a good game and you think, oh, he's an aggressive bull. He's just smacking his cheeks as, as uh, uh, Rut Daniels like to say, he's over there smacking his cheeks. But when it really comes time to, okay, let's fight, they don't want any part of it. Yeah. So when you really talk about those bulls that are fighters that like want to come that, you know, I would say it's down in the 5%, maybe 10% at best of like, oh, I'm bugling at him. He's coming to fight. Well, oh, yeah, maybe five to 10% of all elk you'll encounter want to come and fight. Now, certainly there's a time when maybe all of them would come and fight in the right situation. Right. Yeah. But are you in that situation? But as a general rule of thumb, if you just watch, you know, 15 bulls in a meadow with cows and they're interacting and rutting and doing their whole thing and you watch them day after day, you realize that there's some bulls that, Oh, he's aggressive. Well, is he really aggressive or is he just over there bugling and bugling and bugling? But when he gets challenged, he actually goes away. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then the bull, the mature bull, the big beefy bull walks off and then he comes back and he's smacking his you know cheeks, just bugling away. He's not really aggressive. He's just a big talker. I think we've seen it human beings the same way. I mean, there's guys, sometimes the, my, <laughs> my grandpa used to always say the toughest guy in the room is the guy that's not saying a word. Yeah. And, and, and we see, and the, exactly. Um, there was just a, it just showed up on my, uh, and probably people saw it. So it showed up on Instagram. It, it was a, somebody in the airport was, was taking a video. Um, this really big, I mean, he, he looked like a big muscular, uh, black guy was just screaming 
at this this skinnier little guy that was I guess the skinnier guy uh, there you know the and the skinnier guy was an older guy not old but like probably 50 and the, the other guy was probably in his 30s early 40s and you know the the big guy you know the muscular guy is just screams like what are you doing and basically he sat too close and and then the other guy just sat there just looked at him it was like I suggest you calm down and and the big guy was like it just turned around sat and, and the entire comments you know and then the other guy got up and just moved over a seat but the entire comment section went all in they're like skinny guy there was about to whoop so he was probably some mma brazilian jiu-jitsu or else he was the air marshal or what the guy just unfaced the, the, this big like just, ah, just screams in his face and he just looks at him is like I suggest you calm down. And that was it. Just done. <laughs> and, 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 but the thing is, from a human behavior, everybody got it. As soon as you watched it and you watched the other guy's behavior when he just, yo, yeah, you, yep, yeah. I'm not going to mess with this guy because yeah. he didn't react like I thought he was going to react. You know what I mean? It wasn't, it wasn't defensive. It wasn't, I wasn't intimidated. Or likewise, he didn't come back all bravado and everything else. No. He just sat there, looked at him. It was like, are you for real? How about you calm down? Yeah. I see that with elk all the time. You know, again, we talk about it on the, on the, uh, on the elk module, the elk hunting Institute, the website, the number of gallery videos. I, that's the whole point behind the gallery section of what just here's watch them. And I think you and I talked about it one year on maybe it was your podcast. Maybe it was mine. I don't remember, but we were talking about elk fighting. And what I've seen as well is you will hear the variety, you'll hear the bulls bugling back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it's it, basically a warning, 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 warning. I don't want stay away. But almost every time I've watched elk finally get into a fight, th- there is no change in vocalization. And quite honestly, other than they just, st- it. I warn you, I warn you, I warn you. Okay, fine. And they just turn and just, whoa, here we go. And they just tie into it. It's not like there's this buildup. It's not like they're, they're, I'm going to kick your ass. Oh no, you're not. And, and where they, where they challenge one another to, to, to come in. It's not like they invite each other into fight. And, and you had some good observations, which I thought, you know, the ones that actually finally do come to blows are probably the ones that knew each other, you know, rather than some strange bull that came up on the landscape. I was just going to say, I was just going to say, um, you know, we kind of name the bulls just because it's easier to kind of categorize them. And so Hunter and I know what, you know, what he's looking at, what I'm looking at. But um, if you remember a couple of years ago, that bull Creed, um, beautiful belled in in the yeah. back, just beautiful configuration. Well, there was another bull that was a few years younger called, uh, we, we nicknamed Samson. And no matter what was going on, if Samson heard Creed, Samson would just go to Creed and because he was an aggressive bull. Samson would go fight Creed anytime. And Creed was, he was 10 years old when we killed him and not a fighter. He was a big racked bull and he would fight, but he did not like to fight. But Samson, I'd be just watching uh, Samson bedded one time I watched him bed that he was bedded down, just watched him. And then I spotted Creed up there and Creed bugled 
Samson just got out of his bed and just took off just straight towards him and was like chasing Creed around. Creed heard him coming, gathered his cows, and I'm watching the whole thing, and he's pushing his cows, getting away. And he's an older bull than Samson. Yeah. But he doesn't want anything to do with them. But those two bulls knew each other and know each other. And as soon, like, as soon as one would hear the other bugle, they're like, oh, that's Samson. That's Creed. I don't like him. He doesn't like me. You know, it was but- like Samson. So Samson probably picked up on the fact that Creed is getting older. Creed doesn't like to fight. At some point, I'm going to be able to take him. Well, I think, I think I think Samson knew that he was at the prime of his body condition in life at, you know, probably seven years old, eight years old. And he was like in, you know, at the prime of his life. And he knew that the old man was up there with the cows and it just infuriated Samson that Creed always had, you know, 40 cows, 50 cows. But it was interesting to see kind of the transformation of then you know, a couple of years later after Creed's gone and now Samson is the older, you know, 10 year old bull. And now these other six and seven year old bulls that are finally, you know, they've gotten out of that stage where they're, you know, three, four, five. Now all of a sudden they're like six, seven years old. They're kind of, their bodies are strong and they're, they're you know, their racks aren't as big, but they're like, okay, now Samson, we're going to make you fight for it. Yeah. You know, so. It, no, I mean, it- all right. So again, here we are talking about all of the, all the information and watch what you've watched, but when you, when a push comes to shove, you're still, you're, if you were going to go and hunt the odd six, or you were going to tell one of your, one of your public land hunters to go hunt the, you know, go call, you know, yes, you've got those select bulls because of the personality you've been able to witness and watch. Yes, you might be able to tell them, go use a, a bugling strategy in this particular, for this bull, for this particular reason. But what I've seen over the past and what we're talking about now, probably the most, am, am I fair enough to say, is if you wanted to send somebody out across the landscape, you're still going to recommend, you know, you'd still walk them into a cow calling strategy or you would use, or you guys are using one or is that yeah fair? i mean for me i think the only thing that you would use bugling for and what i would just tell people if, if i was just going to give out advice to people is use bugle to locate elk in other words a nice high fluty kind of bugle to just get other elk to answer once they get to bugling then try and isolate and say i'm going to go after that bull go try and put your eyes go work that bull okay And the other time to use the bugle is if you are able to identify a bull that is very aggressive and that, you know, if you can close into that, you know, under a hundred yards, but you know, 50 to a hundred, and you can get pretty close to him and his cows and you already know he's an aggressive bull. And if you got in close and blew a bugle, so you've gotten in that zone and you've blown a bugle, you know, that he's probably going to come 25 or 30 yards in your way, which puts him now at 25 or 30 yards from 50. Now he's in, you know, tight bow range. That's another time to use a bugle. Um, but I think you can nine, I think I was gonna say nine times out of 10, the majority of time, you can get close to elk and cow call and get them to come over into bow range better than if you bugle. What I find most people I've been watching elk in Arizona 
not calling and I hear a hunter coming and he gets in close. I'm close. He's close. He starts bugling and the cows hear it and they go away. That, okay. I've seen they do way not way. want they, and, right. and you know, Joel Turner talks about bull calling cows bugle and all of that. I will argue that you have to nail it. You have to sound just like what it's supposed to sound like. And most guys can't duplicate good bugling sounds because the call is too long of a call and it's too detectable to human ear. It's too detectable to elk ears and they know it's a hunter. So, yeah. I, I mean, if you took maybe the top 10 buglers in the world, they probably will have more, way more success than just an average Joe Blow bugler. But I still say if you talk, took the top 10 cow callers and the top 10 buglers, it would be a no contest in my opinion. Okay. Let's then trans. Okay. So let's, I, obviously my, my bias, I agree with you. And I'll save my commentary on the, that so-called bull calling cows bugle. I, I've, I, I'm going to, I've got to have, a, I, I've, I've got video. It doesn't matter. I'm going to, I'm going to be talking. Well, and that. I want to say too, I love Joel Turner. I think he's 100%. one of, the, he's, he's one of our great yeah. elk callers. And I, I'm not saying I disagree with him, but what I'm saying is most people can't call like he does. And, and make sure that the scenario in which you're going to execute it is is exactly that situation. Yeah, they mean, can't identify that situation that he can identify. Steve Chapel has taken and told me that he's taken some of Joel's tactics and it's really worked. Well, Steve Chapel has been around elk his whole life and understands when to use it. Yeah. So, but a, a, a good cow calling sequence, I think is going to go a lot further than a good bugling sequence. Okay. So devil's advocate. You said at San Carlo, there was a different, you know, they were absolutely, you still absolutely, you can function with a cow calling strategy, but San Carlos was one of those places where you probably could get away with, you know, a, a bugling strategy. What about when you were up in Wyoming, or, uh, Montana? Cause I remember talking to you about those trips where you kind of were shocked that there was a lot more bugling up there than what you anticipated. Not, not from the bulls. Let me rephrase that. Sorry. I I set that up wrong. You were shocked that you had all those bulls bugling, but it seemed as though that once you guys transitioned from a cow calling strategy and started leaning more towards a bugling strategy, you actually had more success. So what was, is, is that, I think that, yeah, I think I was, I've been up there in Montana twice. Um, and I noticed that the, I think the bugle would go a lot further up there, but I think there's a lot more bulls. Um, so in a similar situation, maybe like San Carlos to where right. you've got a larger percentage of the bull population, lots of bulls, older age class bulls, lots of bulls makes them have to be competitive. They have to be fighters in order to compete, to get cows where, you know, some of the stuff in Arizona, where maybe you have more, less bull to cow ratio, right. Mm -hmm. Where, where you have more cows 
I think that there's, when you have more bowls, that's when I think bugling can probably be more effective at times than cow calling because there's a lot of bulls around and they have to fight and they have, in order to breed, they're going to have to mix it up. Um, I would also not knowing in Montana, the age class, not having the background to know there's a good chance. Maybe we were dealing with a lot of three to six-year-old bulls rather than maybe a, a lot of bulls that were, you know, nine to 12 years old. So they were still kind of in that establishing the pecking order and trying to feel out who, and maybe there wasn't this big, you know, gnarly bully on the block that was going to beat everybody up. So it's like, I'm kind of even with everybody. So let's go ahead and mix it up and fight for cows. And and they're even with everybody and they, okay. So like in Arizona, you have like a three-year-old bull and a 12-year-old bull. There's no way the three-year-old's going to mess with the 12-year-old. Not but if all. you've got a ranch that say there's a lot of four to seven year olds and their body size are pretty similar and they're, you know, there's not a huge difference between a three and a 12 year old. We're all about equals. Well, maybe we're apt to more mix it up. And so, you know, bugling at that bull, he's like, I'm going to come over there and see what's going on. Or I'm going to go over there and, you know, see if he's got any cows and I'm going to try and take them. Well, and I'm going to, I'm going to be going back there. Uh, this year. So I'll be able to, you know, probably yeah. have some more data on age class and some more observations. Well, we'll, we'll yeah, you and I are going to definitely talk some more on that. Cause I, I do, I want to, I'm going to lean on you on some of that stuff because I, I want to tease it out because I've made the argument and not saying that I'm right or whatever, but you know, what I've seen in Colorado in many places on over-the-counter units where, you have a low bull to cow ratio, meaning let's say you have 10 bulls and hundred cows or 15 bulls to hundred cows. Um, but again, because it's over the counter, you end up with a bull age class of two and a half, three and a half. Maybe you have a four and a half year old bull on the landscape. Those are still, once you get to about four and a half, that's what I kind of, that's my, that's what I like to try to find on over the counter. I, I'm, I'm trying to find a four-year-old bull or better if a three-year-old bull wants to come into play and it's towards the end of my season, okay, he's going to eat my tag, but um, I'm going to try to find a four-year-old bull because it seems like between that at four years old, there's one flip or one switch that gets flipped. It, it uh, sudden, suddenly it becomes a different bull. And then you're going to flip another switch at about that. Like you said, six, seven, eight, there, there depending on the pot, there's another fl- switch that gets flipped. Um, but if you're in an over-the-counter unit and you've got two, three, maybe a four-year-old bull, now you're talking about it, psychologically, you're still dealing with an immature animal. So they don't, they're, they're not, they're still that 12-year-old boy, you know, you know, maybe 13-year-old boy. Yeah, the, the, the hormones start raging, but we have no idea what the hell we want to do with those hormones. We know, right. we, you know, we know what we want to do with those hormones. We don't we know just don't have do any it. skills. Yeah, we have no <laughs> skill set of actually making it happen. So what I've seen in a lot of places on in Colorado public land is is not is actually just the opposite. Of maybe what you were saying, I, I've seen less conflict where all of a sudden a three-year-old bull has got four cows that wants to be. This is the first time that they've ever given him the time of day. And he's like, I'm freaking grateful. I want no part. I, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. And again, it's a 10 year old cow. And probably she's, she basically comes into the, uh, you know, me, my, my, how my mind works. 
you know, she's looking at the bull prospects out there. And she's like, shit, this is what I've got this year. I've got him, him, him. Okay, fine. You're good enough, but you are not nearly what I'm looking for, but you're going to be good enough. So guess what, buddy? I'm going to let you play. It's your lucky day. It's your lucky day. I'm going to let you play, but guess what you're going to do? You're going to do everything I tell you to do when I tell you to do it and how I'm going to do it. Is that fair enough? Yep. Yes, ma'am. Yes, I'm happy. Yes, I will. So they just go off into this hellhole of blowdown and thick or, you know, Aspen region. Just they go into the little pocket where they've got food, water, cover, and they don't freaking come out and they don't say a peep. And if they hear, like you said, what you've seen on even on Ot six and other places, all of a sudden, here's another bull that bugles. Who the hell? No, that number one, no other bull on the mountain is bugling right now. So that's a, that's number one strike against it. That doesn't make sense. Number two, the envir- the reason why no one else is talking on the mountain because of the barometric pressure or whatever weather fronts are coming, it doesn't make sense that anybody be talking. So there's strike two. And then what I heard did not sound like another bull. So there's strike three. Whoop. We're going the other way. We're, we're, we're headed out. We're going now. He, the young bull, he may be bugle. He may want to be vocal, but what are they doing? They're walking away, walking, doing circles. Around. They're, they're talking, talking, talking as they either keep their distance or walk away. And it just, I, I would like to say, so I don't forget it. Um, when you are bugling, I think if you can, do some good chuckling. I think if you could do some high pitch squealing young bull kind of bugling. And because most people, including myself, when you start growling and trying to sound like the big mature bull, it does not sound real. Yeah. So I'm all about making the most realistic sounds, best cow calling the most realistic cadence and sequence But when it comes to bugling, if you're good at chuckling, chuckle a lot. You will call in a lot of bulls out of curiosity. What's he up there chuckling? Yeah. If you're just trying to kill a bull and you're hunting Idaho or Colorado or Montana and you're hunting public land and you're just trying to get a bull, I would be whistling. I would be chuckling. I would not be grunting and growling and, you know, advice I can give to people bugling is start with a high pitch. We were always taught on the back of the primos call, you know, wow, no five note bugle start low. Do not start low, start right into your whistle, young bull whistle. And then maybe just, yep. Yep. Do not go. And then on the cow calling, we were always taught you read E dash o e o e o eliminate that from your brain yeah yeah not e o e o yep and that's nobody's fault other than the guys way back trying to help people but i think it has screwed so many people up thinking that the cow call is e o it's not e o there's no you listen to Cow elk, they do not ever go EO ever. Chris is smiling. <laughs> I'm loving it, man. Dude, yeah. this, is, this yeah. is really, I literally, this is what I, and it's not EO. It's yeah, yeah. And, if anything, it's got, yeah. 
And you've got different lengths of that. You've got different. If anything, I would say it's Y-A. Yeah. 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 Not E-O. Or, e- li- or E-E-Y-A. Yeah. If your lips go E-O. E-O. You're wrong. You're done. You're wrong. If you go, yeah. <laughs> Watch cows. They go, yeah. And they yeah, open I'm- their mouth. Dude, man. I, or I- they keep their mouth the same. They don't go. They do not go E-O. They do yeah. not do that. Well, especially and when- bull elk do not go. They like what you see this crazy. I mean, <laughs> if guys would just <laughs> chuckle, chuckle, Dude. most people can chuckle pretty well and whistle. They're going to do a whole lot better than these five, six, seven note up and down chuckling or uh or growling, high pitch, back to growl, lip ball, no. Uh, dude, I, this is why I wanted you on first, because I, I, I flat out knew we have a very similar mindset. But what I wanted to kind of explore was a little bit deeper of, of your depth of experience in places that, again, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I will Jen Saki and I'll, I'll circle back. There are going to be people that are going to listen to what you have to say and say, well, Jay, that's fine, but you don't hunt where I do. You don't hunt on public land over the counter units where you're dealing with a two-year-old bull. So what you're saying doesn't hold as much water. It doesn't, it doesn't hold as much water as the people that I'm watching on YouTube that are hunting on public land in some of the habitats that I'm hunting in. And I'm watching what they're doing. And, you know, they're, they're getting into elk and they're calling elk. And the, the one criticism I have consistently got now, now it's not a lot. Cause I've been fortunate. My, the people that like to follow me and, and, and subscribe to the, the website, it, it there, it's a different mindset, but the number of people that I will get, I will get feedback on. And they're like, well, Yours, I mean, you you have a, you know, yeah, there's a lot of information there and, and you make it more complicated because, you, you know, yours is really just a simplistic, you know, you're, you're just, you're, I, how to, how does it go? Basically, well, all you're doing is just, you know, throwing a cow call and, and that, but you know, there, there's more, it's like, okay, just because you do more doesn't mean you're doing more right. Sometimes the more you do, the worse off you are. And that's why I appreciate what you said, what you said is efficiency. And I've always said that, you know, people ask me, I, I think I'm a good caller. Am I a world champion? Hell no. I put myself as an efficient caller. I can make the sounds that I need to make, and I can make those sounds very well. And quite honestly, I don't even put as much emphasis on so much the quality of what I said but the structure of the sound had better be right. If I want to do a loss mew, that structure had better be correct. I don't care if you foible in it. I don't care if it was perfect or a little crackly, or if you had, you know, the structure of the call, how it goes from high to low is what makes that vocalization say what it means, what it says, or the assembly mute. Or Chris, if you took the top 10 elk callers, I mean, I think this weekend is the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation World Championships. I'll bet you if you ask the 10 best callers up there what sound they're making, they couldn't even tell you. No, there's people. That, so they, my they point is like they've gotten 
elk calling, turkey calling, all, all of the calling has gotten so dr- dramatic and so duck calling flamboyant, but we all know that that, and I'm not saying that the top 10 elk callers aren't great callers, but what I'm saying is what you're saying is you don't necessarily have to have the most perfect sounds, but you have to be, make efficient sounds and know when to use and have the right structure and why a certain call. And that's one thing I love about your stuff is you talk about the why of why would I use this call over this call, this sound over this sound or this sequence over this sequence. That's the difference. If you can understand that, that's important. What I hear out in the woods a lot of times is just every sound an elk makes and you're like, and they're like, I wonder why he didn't come in. Well, you just strafed the whole. You carpet, you, you, you carpet, you carpet bombed them bombed out with the all whole, your <laughs> with every sound an elk would make. You didn't do anything tactfully. You didn't strategically say, I'm going to make this sound because of this. You, you fired into a, you know, you, you did every sound and you know, this and that. And then, okay. Where are they at? Well, how come they're not coming in? Like it doesn't work like that. Very, very rarely, every now and then you can trip into a situation where you and see, this is one of the things that I've said, you know, there, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, I, I want to look for this type of bull. And, and a lot of times what they're describing is you're talking about, you want to find a bull that's bugling and everything. It, it's hyped up. It's ramped up. He's quote unquote aggressive. He's bugling. How oftentimes I listen to that. I'm like, so in other words, what you're looking for is an easy elk because you find a bull that's like that i'll kill i'll call that bull in almost every single time but i'm not going to use a bull vocal maybe maybe i'm not going to use a bull vocalization strategy but if you've got a bull that's that fired up that's that eager to answer that's that eager to engage that that is he's on that mental level i'm jay i'm with you man i will absolutely say i'll walk into that situation efficiently and I'll tell that well, bull exactly what to do. And I'll use a cow calling strategy. Most of the time you can put it right square in your lap. I think a lot of, like a lot of things, I think elk calling pulls a lot of guys egos into it. And instead of sneaking in there tight and getting in close and grabbing a stick and raking a tree in close 60, 70 yards that you haven't even made a peep and you start raking point five times out of 10, that bull is coming into bow range and you I've, I've done it so many times, but it takes my ego to say, I'm not going to call. I'm going to rake, but guess what? Super efficient. Yeah. But it's not sexy, Jay. It's not, but I couldn't say, Oh, I bugled him in. He, he, I, I cow called him in. I bugled him in. No. I snuck in there tight, never said a word. No elk even knows I'm there. The elk are at 70 yards. I need them to come another 40. They're in 30, 35. Now they're in bow range. I have my buddy rake the tree or I rake the tree. Almost every time that bull is going to be like, what? Then he bugles, he bugles at you. You keep raking. He didn't bugle. Why didn't that bull that's raking bugle at me? He bugles again, continue to rake. 
it drives them nuts. Yeah. So and, they and come over to try and see what's raking. By the time they get into where they can see, you use Chris's principle of the doorway and you've already got your right. shot. Yeah, if you're set and up right, it's dead. You ball. never had to call to that elk. Whereas what I see happening because of our human ego, same situation. I got to get in there and fire off a bugle because that's what they tell me to do on the, the box. I read the box and it said get in there and fire off a bugle. Well, that's what all that's what everybody does on YouTube. That's what everybody does right. on, on the podcast. But just a elk. simple thing like getting in tight to elk, try it. You try it this season. Go out there, five different situations. Jay challenged me five different situations. Get in tight, get in within a hundred yards of five different bulls situations where you know there's bulls within a hundred yards. All you do is rake and you tell me what happens. You report back out of those five scenarios. How close does the bull come? All right. Well, then that's a good, that's a good ending point. Cause but our ego is just the, the ego will not let guys, they have to, it, it's a big show. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Point. The show doesn't work in Arizona on public land. Well, and that's the problem. The growly, fancy bugle does not work nine times out of 10. And I, I don't know. I, all we can do is share information. People are going to take whatever they want to take out of it and they can, utilize whatever they want to utilize and how, and, and they may mix and match with other stuff. Like I said, I'm going to have, I've, I've, I've already reached out to Steve. He's out of town now, but when he gets back into town, we're going to sit down and talk. We're going to have the same con. I, I'm and and talk. when, when Steve talks guys, listen, because Steve oh, yeah, really yeah. knows how to call elk. He makes some really good sounds. Um, another thing I would really encourage you is, you know, try a bunch of different calls, a bunch of different manufacturers, find ones that really work for you. Listen to as many elk as you can. Try and make as realistic sounds as you possibly can. Then take Chris's information of what do these sounds mean? When do you use these sounds? So master the realism of the call, but then take it a step further, not just knowing how to make a good sound, figure out a, a targeted strategy, figure out why to make a certain sound, an assembly mew, a loss mew, different types of sounds, be able to recognize this is a situation when an assembly mew would work well. This is a situation when I'm prospecting and a lost mew would work well and understand that. But, you know, having realistic sounds and being in control of your own ego to know where your strengths are and know where your weaknesses are is huge too. There are some guys, you know, they just think they're great at everything. Um, and they don't have a buddy to say, Hey man, that sound, you're sound great. 90% of the time, but that couple things you do just doesn't, it's going to kill it for you. Or, or how yeah. about just having this self-reflection to say, okay, I've done this for the past three or four days in a row and it's just not working. Right. Okay. Okay. Maybe reflect and say, okay, do I try something else? Cause I, I'll be the first to say, I am going to default to, like you said, I'm going to default to a cow calling strategy. I'm going to default to my targeted strategy almost every single time, but there's going to be times where, okay, that's not working. I've, I've been up here. I've engaged. I've engaged. I've engaged. I've engaged. It's not working. And most of the time, okay. If I, if I get to that point and say, okay, well, it doesn't matter. It's not working. Okay. Well, maybe I need to try something else. Maybe right. this bull is, is okay. 
again, it's it's about having a, a, a full toolbox. Again, the, the Valley of the 10 Bulls. I want to have the skill set to be able to walk into that valley and there's 10 different bulls in that valley. I want to be able to work every single bull in that valley, however the heck that bull wants to play. I don't care if he wants to play my game. I'm going to figure out what game he wants to play. Batter up. Let's go. So, all right, brother. I'll cut you loose. I've, I've had, I've had Keep you doing what you're doing, Chris. Love, <laughs> love all your stuff. Lo- always love chatting with you. And um, well, it's uh, crazy how fast this summer's going. The fishing's been great, but I'm really starting to think about elk and getting excited about elk season. I just appreciate you having me on and thinking about me. No, absolutely. You were the first one. I, I, I figured I was going to, what I would, wanted to do with this discussion, I, I thought to myself, I said, okay, if something happened someday where I was not able to call for myself, if, if all of a sudden I couldn't do the call, who would I go to to say, hey, I want you to do the calling for me? And, and Jay Scott, Steve Chappell, and even though we have a wildly, now you and I have, a, I mean, like right down the line, very similar mindset. Steve Chappell, until recently, flat out, but I, we're still 80 plus percent in the same mindset. But the other 20% where we differ, again, I'm going to go to the guy knows what the freaking hell he's doing. And he's good. Makes I don't, really good sounds. I, I will, dude. You do you, man. Steve. Yes, yeah, Steve. I'm step one of back Steve's biggest strengths is, is his quality of sound. I mean, Incredible. he he knows elk really well, but his quality of sound is is phenomenal. So he, he he has that benefit of realism in his in his you know repertoire that's as good as anybody I've ever heard. And he's yep. and he's and the thing about Steve is he doesn't have an ego. In other words, he's a humble guy. I think a lot of guys, their ego gets in the way and it kills them and, and it kills them in life and it kills them. They take the same thing sometimes to the elk woods and Steve's a super humble guy. He's got really good, realistic sounds. And so he's able to play those elk without overbearing. Most elk callers and most turkey callers, in my opinion, they're overbearing. They're, they're too much. It's too much. They're doing too much. They need to get more realistic, simplify it, sweeten it up and not do too much. So I think that's where his strengths are. Um, But anyway, we could talk about this till we're all blue in the face. Uh, Appreciate you having me on and and, uh, looking forward to it. We're getting close to elk season. We're what, 45 days away or so. Don't remind me of the days, man, because I I need more time. But no, seriously, you keep doing what you're doing because we're all living vicariously through your monster browns that you're catching over there. I saw the pictures you posted about the Green River, and I fished it a couple times, most of the time in the winter. But, man, it just brought back some memories. You, you, just a couple of the little things that you showed, I'm like, I know exactly where that is. And, and just looking at the water, I'm like. It's such a sweet place. The water's so what is clear. It? What is it? Like, so today is supposed to be 103. Tomorrow's supposed to be 108 out here. And I'm looking at, you're down in the canyon on that cool water. I'm like, screw <laughs> you. He, he posts it. the pictures, but screw you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for having me on, buddy. Absolutely, brother. Thanks, man. And, and everybody probably knows by now, but j scott outdoors is what most of all your stuff is under right if so they want to find you j yeah scott i mean you outdoors. can just instagram facebook google you name it j scott outdoors it'll lead you down a path you'll probably wonder what you're doing but uh i appreciate all the support out there and um yeah we're we're uh, getting close to elk season so let's get after it guys uh, get in shape and let's go hit the woods and we'll make some more memories this year all right brother have a good one 
Tell right. uh, tell Monty and everybody I said hi, and uh, until next time, man, stay safe. Thanks for you coming bet. on. All right.